that you're seated. If you would turn then to Exodus 34 as we turn again to our series on this portion of God's Word regarding the Lord's self-proclamation. We turn again to verse 6, and for the sake of context, we'll read verses 5, 6, and 7. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. As far God's Word, it's particularly this single word that follows the great name of our great God, Jehovah, Jehovah God, merciful. Now you'll notice that it's quickly followed by and gracious. And these two words, indeed these three words in our English, merciful and gracious, are regularly closely knit to one another. Sometimes gracious and merciful, other times as here merciful and gracious. We should not wonder at their near proximity to one another, nor of that which surrounds, and how in our minds these seem oftentimes synonymous and so closely related that it may be difficult for us to parse out the difference. But all of this, you'll remember, is part of what God had earlier stated, that He would proclaim the name of the Lord before Moses. And what was it that He would cause to pass by before him. But you'll remember as he says, Moses earlier requesting to see his glory. God said in chapter 33, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. So children, you can think of it this way, that one ray of light, when once a prism is set in its path, is broken out in different colors now visible to our eye, and yet all are bound up in that one ray. And so it is here. The goodness of God is being, as it were, refracted to our understanding. So every aspect of what is here proclaimed of Him is bound up in what is here stated to be His goodness passing before him. So it shouldn't surprise us that there is even conceptually in our own minds and in Scripture overlap between these words. And yet, that shouldn't cause us to think that all is one and the same as far as regards our own understanding of these terms and the various nuances that the Lord intends for us to grasp. So we come to consider these various perfections here noted one by one, realizing that as we do, there will be some relationship between each one because all are uh, given to us of God regarding His goodness. Some, it seems, are very near to one another as mercy and grace. And 
others seemingly more specific as, for instance, verse 7, the forgiveness of iniquity, transgression, and sin. Others may strike us as difficult to reconcile with our notion of what goodness is as his clear statement of justice in which he says he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation because in today's world, men look upon justice as something not good. And even we ourselves have been impacted by that thought. But all of this, we're reminded, is the proclamation of God Himself and particularly setting before us His goodness. So we look now at this term, merciful. Here, mercy is a word that we as humans readily acknowledge to be related to what we know as compassion. In fact, some translations will translate this word compassionate. And in fact, in our own translation, this Hebrew word that stands behind the English is elsewhere translated with reference to compassion. And what it's trying to do is help us understand the emphasis that this word carries. Namely, that it is God's goodness toward those in misery. And so we think of compassion, humanly speaking, and we see someone who's injured and limping along or is on their sickbed or is set aside or is under the great weight of pain and agony. And even naturally speaking, that is, unregenerate men cannot help but to have some inward sense of compassion toward them. Now certainly men harden themselves and sin knows no limit as far as how uh, wickedly men may behave against even those in the most difficult of miseries. And yet, largely we see it even in the most uh, godless of men that given a scene close enough to them, there's some sense of compassion. In fact, it is reserved only for the demons and for the damned in hell to know nothing of true compassion any longer. Well, Here, of course, it's not as if, even as you think of the English word compassion, comes from the Latin with suffering or sympathy. It's synonym, which really is just another word for the same, of course, which means, again, with passion with suffering. It's not to imply or state that God has passions as if He undergoes suffering, but rather remember God is condescending. We emphasized this in earlier sermons that God is seeking to help us understand some truth regarding Himself, namely that there is within Him a sincere and earnest desire to see those who are in misery relieved. And so we see it most fully, of course, in the incarnation of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is called in Hebrews chapter 4, one who is our sympathetic high priest. He has entered upon our sufferings, that which God cannot do of Himself as He is God, God the Son did by taking to Himself a true human nature, body and soul, and as in His humanity... His humanity did indeed suffer. Well, all of this is to help us understand something regarding God. That God looks upon the miseries of 
even creatures, as the Scriptures indicate, animals and other such things, and sees it to be not good that they suffer, and extends unto them sources and provisions of help and mercy. We could have much time, of course, on this one theme, but just to gather a few other passages to help us see just how clearly God is acknowledged to be merciful. Notice Psalm 25, for instance, and there at verse 6, later we'll consider the abundance of God's goodness in verse 6 of our own passage. But notice Psalm 25, verse 6, when we read there, Remember, O Lord, Thy tender mercies. And you notice the Hebrew, as noted in the margin, speaks of the bowels, that is, His inwards. And we think of this, humanly speaking, when we speak of um, loving someone from the heart, or we speak sometimes colloquially of our heart aching, our heart hurting for others in their sorrows and struggles. And God is helping us see something of the sincerity of His own mercies toward us. You can see as well in Psalm 51, part of the appeal of David when he testifies of this great truth. And he brings up, of course, verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God. And various synonyms and so on are laid side by side and upon one another that God's mercy would be magnified in dealing with His own sin and grief and brokenness. And of course, Paul acknowledges God the Father to be the Father of mercies in 2 Corinthians and chapter 1. Well, all of this, of course, and other passages that come readily to mind remind us how clearly, how plainly, how regularly God is making Himself known to us as one who is merciful. We can see it in Christ's teaching Himself when He, in the Lord's uh, teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, and He pronounces a blessing upon the merciful. And then later, as we saw in Matthew 5, how He testifies that we're not just to be kind and generous to the good and upright and those who are good and upright to us, but even to those who are cruel to us. And it's a striking statement when He says that you would be as children of your Father. Notice what He said of the Father then, that He sends the rain upon not just the just, but the unjust. And you can think of all how His creation is ordered in even relieving distresses toward wicked ones. We see it evidenced in Scripture again and again and in God's providence observed by us that God is good and often displays His goodness in merciful ways even to the wicked. We wish to consider more fully the Lord's Word here by looking at two things before fuller application. First is the meaning of this word and how it relates to God. And then the second is the benefit of this truth to us before we take a moment to apply it more clearly to our circumstances. So firstly, then the meaning, and secondly, the benefit of such a revelation of God to us. So what does this word more fully mean? Merciful. We've talked a bit about it already. But in essence, it is His goodness toward those who are distressed, toward those who are in misery. So you can think of the Good Samaritan and this aspect of neighborly 
care. And so Christ is asked, you know, and who is my neighbor? And of course, that one who was asking was trying to uh, show himself wise and smart, and yet Christ dismantles his pride and instructs him in the way of lovingly caring for our neighbor. And he sets forth the Samaritan, who to the Jews was considered a half-breed and lesser than, and yet it was he who saw the one who had been beaten and set aside and goes and binds up his wounds and tends to his needs and brings him to one who would tend to him more fully and of his own substance provides for his healing and even says, if there's more that is needed than what I've given, I will come and give more. This, of course, is to display a kind of tenderness and neighborly care for those who are distressed. We sing in the Psalms of those who are grieved in their minds, and we think of that expression, He tenderly upbinds them. All of this is testifying of the delight God has in relieving those who are in distress and in their misery. Indeed, we could say that it is His delight to do so. That He does not do so with you know, grudging disposition, but rather He delights to show mercy and even testifies of His mercy triumphing over other aspects of what He has revealed of Himself. All of this is to tell us that God is such a God who is aware of the miseries of His creatures and particularly of His people. You can see that particularly noted in the book of Exodus, of course, earlier on. When His people are under the bondage of Egypt and their intensity is increasing regarding their pain and sorrow, and yet their groaning ascends to heaven and He hears And what does He have? He has mercy upon them. He sees, and from our point of view, He is, as it were, moved to us to draw near and to heal. And yet, of course, there can be questions that arise. If this is so, this is what His mercy means. And He is merciful. What a word that is. How is it that this reconciles with His sovereign appointment of affliction? and even long and enduring trials. Of course, from our perspective, we endure trials and afflictions which are grievous. Our bodies can be riddled with intense pain. You've read and heard it said, of course, of Spurgeon and Luther both, whose bodies were racked with pain and could not find comfort however they tried on their beds. And other Christians have faced the same. And we acknowledge that those particular and acute circumstances are appointed by God. And humanly, we step back and say, how is this then according to God's mercy? Or we can think of the spiritual difficulties that we face. You think of Christians who at times are left to wander, it seems, in the dark and are left unassured of the love of God to them. And they worry and fret and they're struggling. And it's not that they're lacking diligence, though some, of course, do. Perhaps many do. Yet there are examples of those who are diligently making use of the means of grace and find themselves yet left, as it were, unfulfilled in their hearts yearning for the Lord's drawing near and arising with healing in His wings. 
And others, of course, know the painful reality of broken relationships as Christ Himself has said that His disciples will need to make choices many times between husband and wife or brother and sister or mother and father or child even. Houses, lands, jobs, peace, security. And the history of the church has proven that statement true a thousand times over and a thousand more times that. And in this room, there are those who are in the midst of afflictions and trials, some known and others hidden from the understanding of others. How is it then that God can testify that He is merciful and is pleased to alleviate the distressed and grieved and sorrowful and pain-riddled. Another objection could come that is perhaps an intensifying of the same, though it does switch the focus a bit, and that is, if this is so, how is it at all to be reconciled? The same God who says that He is merciful is that very God who everlastingly punishes sinners in hell. Well, these have an appearance of some weight, and yet what it really discloses is how little the mind has considered the revelation of God in the Scriptures. God's goodness is shown in His love to what is good. This is fundamental. He loves what is good which includes righteousness. This is one thing to consider in answering both of these things. And so we can see, for instance, hell, which seems to be the atheists and the liberal so-called Christians' objection against the Scriptures and so on, this notion of hell. How is it reconcilable? And you see all of the godless advertising of godless people who say in the right words, God is love, and yet then they pit that against the notion of judgment and damnation. And how dare any Christian stand and say that God will indeed punish those whose desires and actions and words are contrary to His Word. Why do they do so? Because they say God is love, God is good, God is merciful. But in understanding all of those things, they understand but a portion and without the fullness. Because God is good far more fully than they understand. He is perfectly good. And in fact, they would understand it if ever they were the victim of a crime. And then a justice or whoever else is charged with upholding the law were to capitulate and reward the very criminal with blessings and not cause justice to be served. We call a court, a jury, a a judge to be good when they execute righteousness. And what hell is, is the everlasting display that God is, without any qualification, perfectly good. He loves what is good. He hates what is evil. He delights in what is right. He despises what is wicked. And so it is right and good for Him to indeed punish sinners 
forever in hell because it is an infinite evil that men commit in sinning against Him. But what about the more temporal sufferings and particularly the temporal sufferings of His people? God's goodness may be less clear to us during the midst of afflictions, particularly as we have an eye to the outward things of suffering. If we were to have seen Job, we would have been instantly dumbfounded, literally silenced because of the misery seen in his outward man. This is what happened to his counselors. They came and they were unable to speak a word. And so they sat on the pile of ash near him, unable to say so much as a word. There are times when you see people who have suffered outwardly and really you realize my words are insufficient and we're silenced. But a lot of that is because of eyeing the outward reality. But in fact, God's goodness and mercy will be fully known on the last day. And yet we have in Scripture various outbreakings to console us in our sorrows and in the griefs suffered by our brothers and sisters. For instance, so soon as certain names are mentioned to you, there's a clicking within your mind to perceive and grab it. So you think of Joseph. And you think for a moment of all of the sufferings that he faced. And yet, it's Joseph himself who was the subject of all of these torments, of all of these difficulties, who is the mouthpiece to say, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. He was able to perceive that because he had come, as it were, through the affliction and seen that every suffering he faced was perfectly ordered and purposed by God for good, both in Joseph's life, but also in the life of the church and the promotion of the glory of God. And brethren, we have every reason to acknowledge that every sovereign affliction that is suffered not only by His people in this life, but even the wicked in this life, will on the last day be openly seen without any argument against it to the contrary, that God is good to do so. He worked good. He brought good. He ordered good in these things. Moreover, as has been prayed here even this evening, when we think for a moment of what every sinner deserves instantaneously, a solitary breath is immeasurably merciful and kind of God in ways that we can understand at present for the sinner. Because we're so dull to the majesty and the grandeur of so glorious a God that He should ever allow someone, anyone who is a descendant of Adam and is thus guilty of his sin and himself a perpetrator of crimes against God, that that one should ever have the slightest degree of any comfort, any ease, any breath, any pleasure, any sight of anything good is immeasurably a proof, evidence, and display of God's generosity and kindness. Yea, though He never lifts them off the sickbed, yea, though He in the end brings them to their end without the grace and gift of repentance, 
He has objectively and truly shown forth His mercy in allowing them any degree of any delight in the good things that He has made. Brethren, it is often our short-sightedness that causes us to rise up as so many critics and judges against Him who alone is good. Think of how Christ says it, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. We have to remember this, that we are those who are still touched by, influenced by the effects of sin. Our minds, our hearts are no perfect judge to discern what is true and good, but rather we being those who are children of the fall, children of Adam, are those who are in need of having our minds renewed and enabled to perceive what is true and good. Moreover, we shouldn't neglect that there are innumerable instances for every single human being of God displaying what we more fully recognize to be mercy even to the wicked. So you can think of this as an analogy, sort of an alongside thought. When we're going through difficulties, it's astounding how frequent we are in reciting the difficulties. But what's often absent is our reciting of all the good things that God is likewise at work doing. And so, whereas we're pained and sick and troubled and our relationships are falling apart and other things are going on and it's not working out as we want, we don't say things like, but God has given me water today. God has given me comfort today. God has given me a solitary brother or sister in the Lord. God has not taken His Word from me today. Instead of magnifying, think of the expression, His mercies, we tend to magnify our miseries. And the Scriptures are often reproving us for the same thing. That we are to be much in thinking upon, numbering, thinking through, identifying the mercies of God. If we took time to start thinking through every detail of His mercies, we would never come to an end of getting through the list of how to every single person individually He has showered upon us many innumerable blessings. Does that mean that He has not ordered trials, hardships, difficulties, even judgments upon us? Not at all. But it is to acknowledge that in the midst of those things, He orders as well mercy upon mercy. Well, this reveals something to us of God who sincerely looks upon us and has desires, as we speak humanly, to relieve us of our distresses. And isn't this the case with His promises? His promises are extending to us. Think, as we considered last Thursday, the Word of Christ to those that labor and are heavy laden. What does He say? He says, come to Me. And what does He then say? And I will give you rest. He's holding forth mercy. He's opening the door. He's saying, I have what you need. You're laboring. You're heavy laden. I am the merciful One. I'm proclaiming to you. I'm holding forth to you these things. Now, is He merciful or not to extend that 
call, that invitation, that command. What it does go to show is how obstinate and hateful of mercy sinners are. That they would dare raise an objection or even an accusation against God when the whole of the Bible is filled with these overtures and appeals and even commands to come to Him that they may have life. No, it's not that God is not merciful. It's that men in their sins are lovers of misery. We see this commonly, right? We see how people get into these so-called ruts and they're always eyeing And we even have sayings like misery loves company. And they find themselves out. That's not something peculiar to certain personalities. That's something native to sinners. Sinners actually delight in misery. And they have all manner of excuses. And they love to blame other people for their misery. We see this naturally, don't we? We see people who are able-bodied, able to work, able to get a job, and they say, well, there's no job that will pay me what I need to get. And so I'm stuck here. I'm a victim of circumstance. I'm a victim of the government. I'm a victim of these people. I'm a victim of all of these things. And they have all of the reasons around them so far as to justify and vindicate their pretended higher ground. But really what they're doing in their own blindness is they are delighting to sit and to sink in the mire of their misery. Because if they delighted in mercy, God is everywhere appealing to them and holding forth the way of mercy. Brethren, God proclaims it. It's true. And yet, instance after instance displays it again and again and again. What misery in your life does not have a particular promise of mercy in God's Word. I challenge anyone here to search the Scriptures with a particular misery and find out if there's not a particular promise that God extends to you. And then you ask the question, is God merciful or not? God is rich in mercy. God forbid that we should entertain evil thoughts against Him when He proclaims it, when He's displayed it, and when He's made provision for our enjoyment of His mercy. God is merciful and holds forth the promise of the same to us. Well, what is the blessing of such a truth? Well, it addresses us, we can think of, in three ways. All of us are creatures of God, and thus all of us have inherent and natural weakness and infirmity. And so when you couple that with sinful infirmities, then we see more fully, truly, how miserable we may have it and oftentimes do have it. But it's striking that so soon as we discover an infirmity and a weakness and a problem and a trouble, we behave as if, set aside how people deal with men, we behave as with before God that we can handle it. We can shoulder it. We can bear up under it. 
instead of seeing that our misery makes us the perfect match for Him in His mercy. So instead of gathering our miseries up and saying, here is my brokenness, here is my grief, here is my heartache, and I bring it to you because you are merciful, we strive to fix it ourselves. And implicitly, we both deny our infirmity, misery, and weakness, and deny that God is merciful. Because if we truly believed it, we would without hesitation cast all of our cares, anxieties, fears, troubles, pains, hardships of great endurance, of intense experience, we would ever be bringing them to God. This is a blessing to realize that even as sinners, God appeals to us by means of His mercy. Yes, He warns, He challenges, He reproves, but are those not displays of kindness to forewarn us of the dread judgment that is coming? And so He comes with great clarity and He says, you're on the path to hell. Yea, for you to realize this, My wrath is already upon you and it only awaits the full exposure when I withdraw these temporal kindnesses and plunge you to your worthy and lasting abode. But He appeals to us. And He calls sin, sin. And you see, again, you can see this relationship. Sinners take offense to that. And really, what's going on is they love the misery of sin. They call it good. They call good evil. And they don't want to turn from their sin. Whereas God is charging, appealing, condemning sin to them. And they say, well, if you were merciful, you'd deal more gently with me and kindly with me, perverting the very words they use with their tongues. When men are on the course and in the way of damnation, it is the most merciful thing for God to come and say, you are a condemned sinner. Repent. When parents see it in their children, it's not helpful to coddle them. It is necessary to say, you are condemned and going to hell. You need Christ Jesus. When we see it in co-workers, we ought to make the time to appeal to them to consider the way. Someone says, well, do I disrupt work and so on? Are there not other ways to do it if that's the hindrance? Ask them out. Take them aside. Pull them after work and give them something to read and appeal to them for these things. This is what God does for us. He is appealing in His mercies to consider these ways. And yet in appealing, what's He doing? But saying, I am your salvation. I, whom you've offended, whom you've sinned against, whom you've withstood, whom you stand opposed to and assault with every profanity, with every wickedness of thought and word and action, yet I, who have every just cause to plunge you into the depths of agonizing torment for your sin, I am coming to you again. And I'm saying, 
I am your salvation. Come to me and I'll forgive you. I'll heal your backslidings. I'll sanctify you. I'll prepare you for heaven and I'll prepare heaven for you. How is that not seen? As God infinitely merciful. Brethren, when it is that you as a believer have sinned again, is it not God who shoots His arrow into your heart as He did to David, sending Nathan the prophet, David, thou art the man. And is it not God who brings David to be broken, to experience the bitter anguish of his sin and conviction? Is it not God who even in mysterious ways orders the loss of his child in order to solidify David in the course of repentance and seeking God? And is it not the same with every child of God that every conviction, every affliction is not just gilded with, but is full of nothing but the gold of mercy from God. Everything the child of God experiences will on the last day be seen to have come from the merciful heart of their loving God. Every trial, every pain, every difficulty. It's our dullness and our weakness in this life that we do not perceive it yet. And yet as we mature and grow, is it not the case that we learn more quickly to acknowledge by faith these things? And we learn to labor in prayer for these things. And what we do is we come to God and we appeal to Him as we'll sing later in Psalm 86. Think of Psalm 123. Think of almost every psalm. These appeals to God's mercy. And we cry out in Psalm 123 that our eyes are lifted up to You till to us You mercy send. There is a growing in the believer of the persuasion of God's mercy, which leads him to labor in prayer before the Lord for the taste of the same. Think of how God to believers opens our eyes to this when He sends, yes, when He sends Satan after us. When He sends Satan after us, is it not to chasten us, to buffet us, to provoke us as it were, to see what? How little, how weak, how small we are, how insignificant, how unable we are. The one who thinks he is standing, let him take heed lest he fall. And so it is a snare ordered by God comes to our path. And His intention the whole way through, whatever Satan's, is that He will get good in us. And so He permits our falls and struggles, and yet He does so in a way in which He is free of sin and iniquity and is ordering all these things, every aspect to our good. Is that not mercy? He oversees our trials and He works every detail out so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, that for the believer, 
all things work together for the good of those that love Him who are the called according to His purpose. Not most things, not even all good things, but all things. Every last thing God is orchestrating, weaving, working together, not just for good, but for the good of those that love God. And so everything in your life right now as a believer is being used of God for the final display of His glorious praise in showing His goodness and working good in us. And yet, brethren, there are other things. Think of what He provides for us in our trials. He provides for us a right sense of our infirmity, but He also opens our eyes to the full knowledge of Christ Jesus. This is an emphasis in the Scriptures. We don't have time to do more than point out. Reference was made earlier to Hebrews 4, and you'll see this so simply and beautifully set before us that we trust it will be full of thoughts and meditation to follow. That we have, verse 14, a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the midst of our sorrows, to whom are we directed? But to Jesus Christ. Think of what the world is directed to. Who have not the Word of God, who have not faithful uh, brothers and sisters and pastors and so on, books and sermons, whereby God directs us. They're directed to all sorts of temporary bandages, which just like band-aids you place upon your skin, lose their ability to adhere, fall off, and show still those wounds. That's what the world offers. But God directs us in our griefs to Jesus Christ, who is this great high priest who gives to us mercy on what grounds. Notice verse 16. By the fact that He is enthroned on the throne of grace to the end that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, it's not just that we look to heaven, but we shouldn't just think of that as some you know, long, off, distant consolation prize. That in and of itself is unspeakably rich. But even now, we are directed to Him who is able in love, compassion, and mercy to provide our souls what is required that we may walk worthy of Christ in the midst of our trials. Well, brethren, as we close, let us exhort one another to learn to be much before the Lord in confessing and to own our misery, pains, afflictions, sorrows, and griefs. There is, of course, the ability by God's grace given to believers in the midst of their sorrows to be triumphing in hope. And yet, there are many times when people 
know that perhaps that's a right thing to do and thus ignore what it is to mourn before the Lord. Well, brethren, if it's wrong to mourn before the Lord, you might as well rip out the majority of the Psalms because the Psalms are full of mourning before the Lord over personal miseries. In other words, let's get this straight theologically, God is calling us, if Christ's Word would dwell in us, to mourn our miseries before Him. He's putting within His praise, by which means, Paul says, the Word of Christ is to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. The fact of cultivating this habit of bringing our miseries with mourning before the Lord. You have unconverted children? You ought to mourn before the Lord. If you have indwelling sin that nags you, you ought to cultivate mourning before the Lord. Do you have physical and temporal trials? The same thing. Why do we say that? Because in this life, miseries are to be mourned. Miseries are to be brought before the Lord and cast before Him for His mercy that we may find Him to be our help and salvation, our comfort and our peace. doesn't mean that all we do is mourn. But brethren, if we never mourn, we're missing out on an important piece of piety. In other words, it's not personality that makes one to mourn before the Lord. There is, of course, those who are more as other generations would say, full of melancholy, which need, of course, the strength of grace to direct them to rejoice in the Lord. But brethren, when we think of misery, the proper response to that is to mourn and grieve before the Lord. We aren't in heaven yet. We are to set our mind on things above which necessarily will make us lament the things below and long for the things above. Think of how a child complains when they smell a dessert and they can't yet have it. They're complaining because they want it and they don't have it. Think of the Psalms of Lamentation. What is going on? Spiritually, the renewed, regenerate, and mature believer is saying, we don't yet have the full exposure and experience of all that is reserved for the saints of God in heaven. We long for that and we lament that it's not yet here. And so we cry out to God. But brethren, we should quickly add to this. Whereas pride robs us from the exercise of grace in our miseries, Likewise, can pride rob us from experiencing and enjoying the experience of mercy when God discloses His mercy, when He turns the light of His countenance upon us. It is now improper to mourn. And it is now right to rejoice, to give thanks, and to delight in the mercies of God. It is not a mark of piety to belabor the misery when God has brought the experienced and felt mercy. Some people say, well, how is this possible? Is it not the case that we mourn and yet not as those who have no hope? 
And so in the Christian, in this life, by the fact of the reality that the Christian has remaining sin, something of the old man, and lives in a broken and corrupted world, and yet is renewed and is being more and more renewed day by day, that both of these things are not just possible for the Christian, but necessary for the Christian in this life. That the full enjoyment of God's mercies is yet to break out upon us in heaven. And yet we should say, there is the breaking out of those mercies. And so as we noted in the Psalms, there are portions which demand of us to take up our miseries, lamenting them before the Lord and crying out, for mercy. There are likewise psalms of thanksgivings fully dedicated to the rejoicing that God has remembered us and has been pleased to be the lifter up of our heads and has satisfied us with His mercies. And it's then that it is right in our experience in this life to be full of gladness and rejoicing doing what? Praise be to God who is merciful and has shown His mercy to me. Brethren, in this life, you will have both. But take heart, because in the life to come, you will only have one. In the life to come, you will only have the fullness of the experience of God's mercy. It's not that God has changed in heaven. It's that He's brought us out of our current broken circumstances and the sins of this world and our own sins and the attacks of Satan and other demons. And He's brought us into that city where there are no longer tears. That city where there is no longer darkness. That city where there is no longer death and disease and illness and brokenness and iniquity. A city where the only sight is the sight of God's glory in Christ, unbroken, undisturbed, never distracted from. And what will it be then but that you will indeed with the fullness of joy say truly, God is merciful. You're touched then by the feeling of your misery now. See how perfectly suited you are in this life to cry out to His mercy, to enjoy His mercy, And see what a wedding of the appetite He's giving you. That one day He will welcome you to the fullness of His mercy, never to be relinquished, lessened, or removed, but only to be enjoyed forever through Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?